Welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from ClippingChains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? Hey, I gotta admit, I'm a little unsure of the best way to frame this introduction. In some ways, this is the story of embracing climbing for all the right reasons. Pursuit of technical mastery and love for the outdoors, over the gamification of grades and emphasis on physical training. On the other hand, this is also the story of early adulthood in the modern era. The narrative to pursue something like climbing full-time is strong in the outdoor world. We've all heard the messaging. Just go out there, chase your dreams, whatever, right? But most I encounter eventually find that climbing alone leaves us yearning for meaning and purpose. My guest today, Tyler Caro, spent nearly three years on the road pursuing climbing, nearly full-time. Today, he balances considerable climbing achievements with a secondary passion for building and a desire to be part of the solution to America's affordable housing crisis. Caro is a 29-year-old climber known for his big wall accomplishments in Yosemite, Patagonia, and around the globe. His resume includes a ground-up free ascent of Golden Gate, 513A on El Cap in Yosemite, and Yosemite's triple crown in under 24 hours, only the eighth time this feat has been achieved. Notably, Caro put down the triple while working a full-time plus job, perhaps the first to do that. He holds a BS in civil engineering from the University of Southern California and is a licensed civil engineer and general contractor. With his background in engineering and construction, he envisions a career helping to build prefabricated tiny home communities. This emerging approach to construction helps to reduce the cost of new housing and more efficiently add supply to a stressed housing market. And this episode is an Oreo of sorts, with a focused discussion of Tyler's climbing achievements and work-life balance in the beginning and end. So if you're mostly here for the climbing, that's where you're going to get that, the beginning and the end. But the middle of this discussion takes a deep dive into the affordable housing crisis, something longtime readers know I have quite a fascination about, this whole housing market in America, perhaps across the globe. The complex nature of new construction is something Tyler is really interested in. And of course, his vision for the future of American affordable housing, something we should be all considering, even if we're not interested in owning a home. I don't have a whole lot in terms of administrative tasks today. I want to thank Jeff and Rose. They are my latest uh, Buy Me a Coffee subscribers. I want to remind you that if you are enjoying this show, You can help support this platform at Buy Me A Coffee. There is a link right there in your show notes or anywhere on the website. You can pay as little as a dollar a month or a one-time donation of $5 to help keep the lights on here. I say it all the time, but hey, we need the help. Podcasting gets more and more expensive just about every week. My costs are always going up just like everything else in the world. So (laughs) anything you can do there helps a lot. So thanks again to Jeff and Rose for being truly wonderful people and helping out around there. And to all my subscribers, thank you so, so much for your contributions. Okay, guys, that's all I've got this morning. Let's get into this really great interview with Tyler Caro. Okay, see you on the other side. Well, Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 
You've been super busy, and I had this impression coming into this conversation we talked earlier, wait, maybe it was last week. We talked last week that you'd been kind of just spending the fall out in Yosemite, like full-time climbing, and you quickly corrected me on that, that if anything, you're like super weekend warrior status. You've been working very hard. So maybe why don't we just start with you catching me up on your fall season? Yeah, it's been it's been a pretty pretty incredible and overly packed fall for me. I have been working a pretty full time job, um, definitely over forty hours a week, and uh, I'm I'm working um, managing a construction project in the Bay Area. Actually, I do that remotely from Truckee, which is where I live, and then I have to be on site occasionally to to deal with to deal with stuff as needed, but. Yeah, in between all that work time, I've been heading to Yosemite pretty much every weekend for I, th- I think I I think I went like five or six weekends, which was a lot of driving. I was doing this like I call it the triangle of death. It's like <laughs> it's like horrible drive where I'd essentially start off my I'd start off my I like on on a on Friday I'd drive from Truckee to to Yosemite. How far is that? Uh, it'd be four and a half hours, yeah, like okay. late in the night when none of the traffic in Tuolumne like makes you go slow. Um, mm-hmm. and then, and yeah, and then I'd like climb Saturday and Sunday, and then I would drive out Sunday, Sunday evening or Monday morning to the Bay, um, you know, and then spend like two days in the Bay and then drive back to Truckee. And it, it wasn't usually that bad. Sometimes I would like totally skip the Bay for a week or like, there was a week right. I stayed in Yosemite for a week and just worked there and then went back to the Bay. And so I've been like kind of making it work, but yeah, it's been an insane amount of driving. Um, but it's also been a, a really sweet season and I, I love Yosemite and I got to, um, climb some pretty cool things and climb with some cool people and hang out with some really awesome characters out there. And, um, I got to complete like my long-term objective of climbing the triple, which I was really, really stoked about. So mm. So yeah, um, a lot of driving, but overall worth it. And I think from here on out, I'm pretty stoked to live a bit more of a, I guess, drive-free, mellow life and not not include Yosemite and in, in the triangle of death. <laughs> the triangle of death. So what else did you do out there? I mean, I know you didn't just do the triple. What else? Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of went out there like with the sole intention to do the triple this season. That was my that was my objective. Um, I. I, uh, I've known this guy named Miles Fullman for, I guess, a few years now, but we were hanging out in El Shelton together this past February, and he, he had asked me if I wanted to do the triple. I was like, actually had, had reached out to another friend to see if he was interested, and I wasn't really sure where that was going. My other buddy wasn't particularly psyched, and, and, um, yeah, we agreed and decided to, like, I don't know, do a lot of training. I think after the first, I went down there, I think in September and miles and I climbed, um, I think we spent like one day climbing Mount Watkins together. And then we we're going to climb the nose the next day. And, and he ended up getting hit by a car on his bike. And so we just Whoa. climbed Watkins. We didn't, we didn't climb the nose. It was pretty minor. I ended up climbing, um, climbing on, uh, climbing with another buddy, climbed on the prow. And, uh, that was kind of like a fun day, but I think after that, like first down walk-ins, you're both like, oh, we could probably like do the triple next weekend and it would go. But, um, you're both interested in like being, feeling super prepared for it and not feeling like it was out of reach. And 
um, we wanted to do it like well within 24 hours and feel comfortable and safe on it. So uh, yeah, we, we, um, we had like, I guess kind of, I had like three prep weekends. So went out there that first weekend, climbed Watkins, climbed a little bit on the prow as a contingency plan, and then went out there again um, with, uh, with the intention of climbing two routes on L cap and climbed the nose with a, uh, with a friend named Michelle. Um, and then I actually dislocated my, I subluxed my shoulder halfway up the nose, um, on the limb hill traverse, which is like probably literally about 50% of the way up or something like that. And, um, that was, that was like an interesting situation. We actually ended up <laughs> bailing up <laughs> because I was like, I, we like, we did an assessment and decided that, um, I could probably just Jumar behind. And there are actually some, some doctors who were on the wall, like a pitch and a half above us when it happened. And, um, as we passed them, I was like, Hey, do you guys think this is, do you guys think this is chill? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> You're good to go. Can you give me a quick physical here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, it was cool. I, I was like, I was climbing with this, um, Michelle, she's like probably the most, one of the most senior members on, on Yosar. There were these two other dudes who were super cool. They were hanging out with us. Um, we like had, we were about to pass them and, um, uh, they were both EMTs, I believe. And we had these two doctors, like a pitch and a half above us. So I, I felt like I was with like the most ideal group. You're, you're in good hands. Yeah. I was in good hands for, <laughs> yeah, for like an injury like that. And, um, so yeah, that was, I think my second time, my second time out in the Valley. And, uh, I was, I was planning to climb another route on El Cap that Sunday right after the nose, but that, that didn't go down. Um, and so, yeah, I like spent the next two weeks, like seriously rehabbing my shoulder, like going, getting pretty like obsessive on PT and doing a lot of strength exercises and like range of motion exercises. And I got back my full range of motion in like three or four days and then wow. just started strengthening Jeez. my, my shoulder. And I definitely pushed it a little bit more than maybe one should, but I was like really stoked on the triple and I knew that this was like the only way to. I guess get it good and so um yeah and then i think the weekend after that miles and i did the uh the tanaya half pipe which was like you know i think we were we walked went into the valley and i was like oh let's like climb half dome or walk-ins on saturday and half dome on sunday but we decided to just do both of them in the same day on saturday and um and then yeah and then uh i think i climbed one more time before the triple with Brandon Adams and Jim Reynolds, we climbed magic mushroom. Um, and then, yeah. And then the next weekend after that was the triple. Um, and then I went back to Yosemite uh, the, the weekend after that and climbed another route on El Cap, which was new dawn. Mm -hmm. And I did that with <laughs> Brandon Adams and miles again. And that was like four days after we got down from the triple. Um, and we got another, another like 17 hour lap up up at eight route on El Cap and got the speed record, which was super cool. Um, I kind of enjoy that style of climbing, but I definitely, definitely am feeling a little bit exhausted and burnt out from all of the driving and weekend warrioring. Yeah. So really quick, just definitions. I mean, this isn't a climbing podcast. So I won't derail us too long on this, but can you define what the triple is for those who aren't aware? Yeah, totally. Um, so I guess I should just, start with some context so the first time um 
So like El Cap was, you know, climbed over like the nose. The first time it was climbed, it was climbed over like 45 days or something crazy. Mm-hmm. And then right. back in, I believe, I want to say like the late 70s or early 80s, not positive. Um, thought it might have been earlier, but I'm not sure either. I'm- oh, no, no. Sorry. I was about to like back in the late 70s or early 80s, I believe was when the, the nose was climbed in one day. By, uh, okay, um, okay. John, John Long and Billy West Bay and... Um, uh, maybe Jim Bridwell. I can't remember. Man, my history is getting bad. <laughs> I used to know this. Um, yeah, and then and then John Backer and um, Peter Croft climbed what's called a double, which is the nose of El Cap and Half Dome in a single a single day in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in the 80s, and uh, that was like a really iconic moment uh, in climbing and. And then in the late 90s, I think Dean Potter started thinking up some like various link up ideas. And I think it was it was 2001 when Dean Potter and Timmy O'Neill did the the first triple. Um, And that is a link up of the three biggest big walls in Yosemite. Um, That's Mount Watkins. Uh, The south face, the south face of Watkins is this ginormous big wall that no one really knows about. It's kind of tucked behind behind half dome it's actually in tanaya canyon it's not technically in yosemite valley i guess it's like a little bit of an extension of the valley um and then uh yeah this the northwest face of half dome and um and el capitan so it's a link up of those three it's the link up of those three big walls and it is uh like seven thousand feet of rock climbing technical rock climbing and um Timmy and Dean did it in just under 24 hours. And so they kind of set, set this like tempo for that being the standard. Um, and yeah. And every ascent to date has been under 24 hours and it's been done eight times um, and all sorts of different styles. It's eight times, including Honold doing it twice. He did it. <laughs> he did it once with uh, Tommy Caldwell and they did it free, which is, like to be totally honest, like insane, like just so far, so far above like what we were doing out there. Like that is like, I think, I think the most impressive feat in like Yosemite climbing over the Dawn wall or like the, or like Mm. free soloing free ride or anything like that. I think it's like pretty, pretty insane. Um, and then Honnold did it solo. Um, and then, uh, Jordan Cannon and Scott Bennett, they did it with uh, like all human power. So that was like, I believe the first time that was ever done without, without like car assisting people. Cause typically shuffle you like, around. Yeah. Yeah. Like the way we did it, we did it like fully supported. Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, and, and I was like pretty stoked to just like do it that way. We, totally. like, we climbed, we climbed walk-ins first and we had friends, um, like meet us on the summit of Watkins and, and then hike off with us and drive down, drive us to Elkhart Meadow. And then, um, I had like one of my really good buddies, like met us on the summit of, of every, of every wall, which was like really, really cool and special. And he kind of came with like an entourage of friends and, um, <laughs> we had like, we ate super well. We, we drank wine in between each, each climb. <laughs> like it was, it was like a hilarious, like, I don't know, ridiculous and fun endeavor that was like, I don't know. It felt like less serious. And, but like, you know, it was this, this objective that I've been really psyched about for a long time. And miles has been really psyched about for a long time. And 
um, it came together super well. And then when we actually did it, we did it in like, you know, 21 and a half hours, uh, roughly. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it went like pretty smoothly. Like it didn't feel like we were pushing it or like, you know, we were, we were keeping it super safe and I was placing a ton of gear <laughs> like more yeah. than I normally would on like a lot of those, a lot of those routes that I just do in a single day. Cause I was like, but especially like on the nose and half dome, I was feeling pretty fatigued. So, um, yeah, I'm like really psyched how, how it all went down. Well, congratulations, man. I mean, do you want to like improve on the style or are you just like, that was good enough. I'm done. Count oh no! Yeah, no, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm like, I'm super happy. Uh, like, I'm proud of the style that we did it in. To be honest, like, yeah, it would have been, I guess, cooler to bike between the mountains. But like, I, for me personally, like, but then you wouldn't get wine. Yeah, no, I mean, you still could have drank in the <laughs> okay, wine. Yeah, but you could add wine. The the subtle improvement of style there, like, yeah. doesn't. I no, don't know, doesn't it's like, just. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Of course, I couldn't do any of this, so this is all impressive to me, but still. Yeah, yeah, it, it just becomes a little bit of just like who can one-up each other with more and more marginal, you know, changes in style, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's like, I think it's cool when people put their own mark on something and like sure. do, I, I respect, I really respect style. And, you know, like I think the human power thing is, is, is awesome. I just, for me, it was like, cool, I'm going to like, <laughs> I'm going to do this. And, you know, I just wanted to, I just wanted to do it. And I, I thought like after climbing, after climbing El Cap and Half Dome in the same day, I was like, the triple is next. Like, I will do this, like, <laughs> you know, for sure. And it just felt, it felt like the right thing to do, particularly like the time of year. There, there are a number of factors as well. Like most people do this in the spring. Um, I think it's a lot more advantageous to do it in the spring. You have a lot more daylight, um, the sun. Mm, you know yeah. kind of like is a bit more advantageous in that regard so you know we're like you know and also just being a weekend warrior it, it made it a little bit more challenging to make this happen because like the way that these all of these like weekend trips would work is i would get out of work on friday and and then i drive down to the valley and like call up whoever i was climbing with that day and be like yo like what's the rack like <laughs> <laughs> we'd rack up over the phone or over text as I was driving down <laughs> and we wouldn't meet up till the day we were climbing. So we'd go like That's nuts. climb these big walls and be like, cool, let's meet here at 4.30 AM. And I'd have like most of my, the stuff that I needed to contribute kind of like set up and, you know, the other partner miles likely would have like most of his stuff set up. And then we would, uh, yeah, like, you know, put the rack together at 4.30 AM and hike out and, do the thing and and then sometimes i would um you know finish up at like super late on a sunday and like drive halfway out of yosemite and like drive the rest of the way on monday back back to work so it was a lot i don't know it was a lot i mean there's style points has anyone done the triple with a full-time <laughs> plus job uh i don't know probably <laughs> not <laughs> you need that asterisk at least yeah i guess i I think I also have this opinion that like in climbing people, so many people are like going for the asterisks or like going for like the first people are like, Oh yeah. Like I did like first, like, like, Oh, like I got the first, whatever ascent of this because I did it this specific way. I think, I think that like climbing culture should change and like not necessarily reward people for that. I think there's like a lot of, 
like incentive especially for sponsor climbers to to do stuff like that because it looks good on the resume to be a first but sure. ultimately i think that people should just be proud of like whatever objective they do and whatever style they do and i think there's a lot of like excessive claiming these days and i don't know i think that should maybe be toned down a little bit hmm. well in danger of making this a climbing podcast because i'm going to get sucked into it either way i mean tell me what what do you think about why do you think that is like why do you think there's it just seems like there is more of a gamification of climbing as time goes on. Is it just because that's where we were at and, you know, the, the human achievement is kind of capping, so we have to find marginal ways of making it more and more interesting? What are your thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely people who are, like, doing a lot of badass first ascents and first whatevers, but I do think, I do think that, like, my complaint or, like, my acknowledgement of something maybe it could be a problem or not is just this this um this issue that i think there's a lot of pressure for people to feel like badass Mm. whether it's to advertise on their social media platforms or to show to their sponsors that they like are worthy of like said sponsorship or whatever and i think that like people oftentimes will be like oh like my ascent is like extra special because it's the first whatever it's the first this ascent it's the first yes. that ascent yes. like therefore you know it gets extra points or i should have extra kudos um a lot of the times those things are totally warranted and like worth being pointed out but i do think that that i don't know i see a lot of things in climbing where people are like oh i first the whatever ascent of this route and I don't know. Like, like I was joking, like, Oh, maybe we should try the first, like the first burrito only ascent of the triple. And like, only <laughs> exactly. eat. cause like yeah. I was considering only eating burritos the, the entire time. Cause that's, and that's pretty much what we, I, I ended up eating the entire time. And yeah. I was like, maybe I'll just like, you know, not bring any bars and just bring like a half burrito on like <laughs> right the, the nose or something. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> we can get the first burrito ascent of the nose, but um, I mean, I just, it's just a point that I think that sometimes, some people are likely to characterize their ascent as more important because it is a first something. And right. I don't necessarily think that that is like a, an awesome culture. No, I mean, it's a very competitive culture and, and I don't think it always li- leads to the best outcomes for people. Yeah. It leads to this kind of one-upsmanship. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I've always been someone to, I don't know. I really, I climb cause I think it's like, because I think it's fun and I really enjoy the adventure and the partnerships I have. And it's like, for me, it's less about the competitive nature or about sending something hard. Um, so yeah, yeah I think I've, I've noticed that about you. You seem to have a, you care, but you don't care maybe too much, which is, I mean, obviously you care a lot. You just did this huge, you did the triple and other things that are these major objectives. These are not just like quote unquote having fun, but <laughs> I don't know. How, how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I think about it. A, I, I have thought about it quite a lot because I've always, I mean, recently, especially I've thought about where I want climbing to be in my life and how I want to handle it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I initially got into climbing, not I had zero interest in being a strong climber necessarily. Mm-hmm. And, um, or like a highly, uh, a performing athlete. I don't, I still don't really consider myself like an athlete. But I I did just like fall in love with the sport and I'm really, really passionate about it. And I, I love getting out there. And 
I think I just got lucky and with motivation and, um, yeah, I just, and passion, I got, I got to be, I guess, like decent at it. And I've been able to climb relatively hard. I've, it's actually been a conundrum for me. I'm like, huh, do I double down on this and try to get stronger and try to climb another elk cap route free? Do I try to like climb 513 or 514? Or do I just like continue climbing the way I want to climb and just to enjoy it and with my friends and not necessarily focus on performance? And yeah, I kind of have landed in a place where right now I'm I'm less stoked on on climbing hard. Uh, hmm. I do enjoy I do enjoy climbing hard, but honestly, I would way I re, I have way more fun climbing a five ten multi pitch in the Alpine than I do projecting some five thirteen sport route. Mm-hmm. And I, I have never really been much of a projector, and I've never really been much of a boulder. And uh, yeah, I at the moment I'm just a little bit more keen to to climb adventurous routes and climb multi-pitch stuff and um i do enjoy sport climbing and honestly i feel like i'm in a little bit of a need of a sport climbing trip in my near future (laughs) um and i do i would like to get stronger for sure and i do anticipate that i will get into training at some point um but to date i have not done an extensive amount of training and i haven't really focused on the performance side of climbing and i've been pretty pretty happy with that and I also think there's there's a unhealthy culture in climbing um, that really emphasizes performance and oh yeah oh yeah I think it encourages people to to train a little bit more than they should and climb inside a little bit more than they should yeah um, yep. particularly like I mean many people don't have the opportunity to live in a place where they can climb outside all the time but I think that there is like you know a, a just a, a culture that people like people want to climb hard and feel like they're worthy and strong. And I think that that's like, I don't know, not awesome. And I hope that it, I hope that the climbing culture shifts in the other direction, but I don't necessarily anticipate or foresee that happening. No, I don't really either because I think it reflects broader changes in society as a whole. And that's a whole nother conversation I think we could go into, but I mean, this is why I think your approach is kind of surprising because, well, A, you haven't been climbing very long. When did you start climbing? Like 2017 or something? Um, yeah. I mean, I joined, Jeez. I think I joined a gym. I joined, I mean, I, I joined a gym November of 2016. And I like went to the gym a few times, you know, that, that year, but really it was 2017 when mm-hmm. I We'll give you 2017. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. November. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then I, I went outside for the first time, um, July of 2017. That's crazy. Uh, Six years ago. Yeah. Well, I want to weave this towards what I think is really interesting about you and that, I mean, especially with this little, the little amount of time you've been climbing and, and the performance you have had, despite not caring about performance all that much. I mean, what I don't hear you talking about is taking your career into climbing or pursuing professional climbing in some way, or even something, you know, climbing adjacent, you've decidedly had a very separate, you know, as we already alluded to, full-time plus career on the side while you've been doing all this crazy stuff in Yosemite and other places. So tell me a little bit about maybe your background there and and what it is about that kind of work that keeps drawing you in instead of just going full on into climbing. Yeah. So I worked, um, I guess I'll just give you my, I guess my professional background. Um, I, 
I worked, I studied civil engineering in college. Um, and then I worked for a, a civil engineering firm right after school. Uh, I, I got fired from that first job out of college, which is, um, I, I think I briefly told the story on the Enorma cast, but um, essentially I had a boss that I did not enjoy working with, um, who I thought was a pretty bad person and unfortunate person to to work with. And mm-hmm. yeah, I spoke up in my one year review and kind of voiced my my opinions professionally and said like, hey, like if you want to work if you want to have a successful relationship moving forward, you can't hang up the phone mid conversation and you can't, you can't, um, you have to allow me to ask questions. And she, she believed that I shouldn't ask questions that that was a waste of her time. And there are a number of, you know, things that I think are like pretty, I don't know, should be pretty accepted for, for like training a new hire, but she didn't necessarily think they were. And so, yeah, I worked there for like one more month as she built up a case and got me fired. And then, mm-hmm. um, I, that put like that threw me in a crazy place. So I was like pretty confused and, um, I ended up working and that job actually. So what I was doing there, I was, uh, I was working as a civil engineer that was focused on designing building enclosures and also doing a bunch of, a bunch of like forensic engineering. So the company I worked for would get hired pretty regularly if there was a, uh, if there was a building that had failed and mm, needed okay. a repair design for it, or like an expert witness at some sort of like te- for testimony during some sort of like litigious situation. So like a typical scenario would be a building, a building fails, the owner sues the contractor. One of the sides hires us. We go to site. We do a bunch of like observations, figure out what's wrong, potentially design a repair, potentially testify at trial. And so I was the dude who was going to site, um, doing the investigations, and then writing reports. But yeah, that lasted like just over a year. And then I worked for a company called uh, Rad Urban in Oakland. Uh, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and that was. A pretty cool gig. I actually really enjoyed working there, um, and that that was working for a company that was building prefabricated modular apartments. So the concept was that uh, we would build we'd build modular apartments in a factory. We had a factory in the Central Valley in California, and then ship those modules to site, assemble them on site, and build a building. And when I was working there, I was actually managing the pre-construction of our first high-rise and it it got delayed for a number of reasons and actually just just like literally two weeks ago um the the company ended up failing and then it kind of came back in a different form and and um just two weeks ago actually the the prototype of like the technology that i was you know helping to design there uh just just got put into the ground which is pretty cool that it's finally come full circle but Hmm. um but yeah it's taken it's taken a long time and uh while while the company was i worked there for two years and um i was like really really psyched on rock climbing uh and i had this i had this plan to like leave leave work once i got my my pe license my professional engineering license and take some time off and it kind of coincided nicely with the company being about to fail and um, so yeah, I ended up leaving and built a van and just pursued rock climbing full time. Yeah. And so I, I, this was interesting to part to me because I know you're a very thoughtful person and you had to have given this a lot of thought. And so I could, I could just see someone sitting at their computer being like, okay, another young guy, 
you know, educated. You got your degree at University of Southern California, correct? I mean, this is not like a slouch school. You know, you get your degree, you go and work for like a year, and then you just quit or whatever and go have fun. But you had to have considered this. What were your thoughts at the time on the trade-offs in this decision? Yeah, totally. Um, so, I mean, right when I graduated, I, I had this idea. So, like, I had started saving up money, like, the minute I started working after college. Uh, I started I started work with with um, with this concept that I would work for two years and then quit my job and travel mm -hmm. somewhere around the world. And I at the time I wasn't a climber and I had no intention to rock climb, but I thought like backpacking around the world would be cool. Like maybe go to South America for a bit, maybe go to Europe for a bit. And and I just I just didn't love the idea of of graduating college and then working your whole life until you retired and then and then like yeah, you know, i relate <laughs> yeah yeah i just it seemed it seemed absurd to me at least and um the pe was the perfect the perfect little timeline for me because i knew i knew that a pe is is like you know if you have a if you're a civil engineer and you have a pe getting a job is is pretty easy like you're very hireable and so i thought it would be a really good safety net I knew that if I could get my professional engineering license, then getting a job after that was going to be way, way easier. And and they are state specific, right? They are, but yes. they're easily okay. transferable and certain states have different requirements. So California, for example, actually has two additional tests that you have to take, but you can get it in like two years as opposed to four years. And almost gotcha. every other state has like a four year requirement. So I can get it way faster, um, but I just have to take a couple more tests. Gotcha. So, so, uh, yeah, so I, I like worked that first job, worked the second job and it turns out they say two years, but it's actually like three, it's like actually an additional year. Cause it's like two years of experience. Then you can apply, then you can take the first test and then you can take the next test. And then you like, you know, it, it takes, it takes a minute. Um, but I, I did eventually get my, my PE and I quit, uh, to pursue climbing because while I was living in San Francisco and working this job, I was, I got really, really psyched on climbing and thought that that would be like the perfect use of my time. And, mm -hmm. um, my initial intention was solely to take off a year and a half. I was like, okay, I'll build this van. I'll work for a year and a half. I'll sell the van. I'll come back to the quote unquote real world and start <laughs> working again. Yeah. And I I'd, I'd calculated all that out. I calculated how much money I needed. And then it turned out that living on the road was like way less money than I thought it would be. I was living super cheaply, uh, going through very little money throughout the year and living a pretty dirtbaggy lifestyle. Although I don't, I can't really like consider it full dirtbag as I was living in a Ram Promaster. <laughs> and uh, which at the time they were like, you know, super relatively quite cheap compared to how much they cost today I but know, i know it's insane literally like i i paid like half the amount of what one would cost today for similar Jeez. mileage um and, and what are we talking like 2020 here 2021 2019 oh 19 um, okay, okay summer summer 2019 okay yeah pre-covid yeah so that was like my calculus i was like cool i want to just like enjoy some time off I had no desire to be a professional rock climber. I had no desire to like be a well-known rock climber and, and I had no desire to like make rock climbing my life. I'd always, I'd, I've always actually, I really, really enjoy building. Um, I've like been into like furniture making. I like working with my hands. I like building things, um, you know, for my own little 
hobbies and passions and pursuits. And then I also enjoy managing projects and building larger, larger items and feeling innovative in that world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always been interested in architecture and design and engineering. And I find that stuff kind of fun. However, being on the road did make me reflect on a lot of this and really changed my my opinions quite a lot um, and made me, I think, a little bit more ethically motivated. Hmm. And uh, I what came back. Um, well, like when I was in college, I think I interned my first internship out of college was working. I lived in I grew up in New York. And so I remember I interned for like a construction company working on Madison Square Garden, the arena. And then I, I interned for building some other high rise in New York. And then I went to school in LA and I worked at, I worked on building this fancy, fancy, fancy apartment building high rise in century city. That was going to be like, you know, the most expensive apartment or have the most expensive rents of pretty much any building at the time there. And those were the type of projects I thought were cool at the time. I was like, Oh, I want to do these like really, really big, massive projects because that is what that's what like the best engineers do they do flashy things they do the flashy expensive projects and and then my entire mentality shifted um it it was already shifting in college but it really like finished its shift when i hit the road and like started to appreciate i guess making a difference and trying to like have a positive impact on the world a bit Mm -hmm. more and it shifted in a place also, or part of that was also due to like the company that I worked for in Oakland, which was building prefabricated housing. And the whole objective of that was to make housing more affordable, um, decrease construction costs. And, uh, and so when I came back, I decided that I wanted to build, but I also was like particularly motivated in trying to solve the affordable housing crisis. And I realized that I maybe have some ability to to impact that that social and economic issue that is very prevalent in our in our society. I'm trying to figure out a path, and I, I kind of have a path to get there. Um, and it's a long path. It's a it's a really long path that we should definitely talk about. But um, my my objective now is to to figure out a way to make housing cheaper, um, pr- primarily in mountain towns and. Um, yeah, that's kind of like one of my my new passions. No, I love it. And, you know, housing is something I have a mild obsession with too. I've I've found the housing market pretty fascinating for the last, I mean, kind of forever, but especially since the 08 crash and what happened then and, and it's uh, quote unquote rebound and, but a lot of supply restrictions since then. And so the big issue today is supply by far. Um, totally. You know, we can talk about mortgages, we can talk about all that stuff, but demand is strong. Demand is just... A raging fire, but supply, supply is where we're really hurting. And so that's why I find these sort of solutions to be fascinating. And I think we're going to be definitely heading here where you see a lot more, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see a way to make a big three bedroom, two bath house more affordable without just market pressure external. Right. But if you can build a lot of either accessory dwelling units, these tiny home communities, which I think we can talk about here, I think that's where your interest is. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. But there are some serious regulatory headwinds, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. And and just I mean, to I, I think you've like totally just hit the nail on the head right there. It's 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 insane how 
I mean, it really is just, it is a supply and demand issue. And like, ultimately, like the reason supply is so limited is because the cost of housing and the cost to, to build is so insanely expensive yes. and so high. And, and those costs have gone up um, astronomically in the last decades. I would think it's worth just maybe backing up and talking about why that is. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Let's say you're in San Francisco and you want to build a new apartment building and it's going to be, uh, you know, some 20 or 50 story apartment building in downtown. The way that the way that gets done, it's a it's going to be a union job. Um, and let's say you want to you want to hire a contractor to you need, you need to hire a plumber on this day to plumb the, the 47th story to plumb the some bathrooms on the 47th story of this building. So you you that plumber, you hire him, you sign a contract, he drives out from two hours away where he probably lives. And then mm. he gets to San Francisco. He uh with all of his material and everything he needs, he waits in line at the elevator uh to go up into that high rise for maybe 30 minutes, depending on the day, up to 30 minutes, and then gets up there, starts plumbing his bathroom, realizes that he doesn't have all of his materials, or maybe he's missing a fitting. He calls his some apprentice or journeyman to go down and get a new part. That dude goes back down the elevator, fetches the new part, comes back up the elevator. An hour and a half later, he gets the fitting, you know, plums half of a bathroom, and then it's time to go home. And that's like a typical construction project in San Francisco. There's a million. I mean, every every city is like that, and every every place when you have on-site construction is is like a total mess. Um, <laughs> It's it's incredibly inefficient, and things are built the same way that they were built back in the early 20th century. Everything's stick built, non prefabricated, yep. um, and it's it's quite old fashioned. and And when I was working for this company in Oakland, um, the the guy who ran it, he was a pretty inspiring character, and he he was really innovative, and he kind of looked at the way that ships were built at the time, and he was like, "Hey, like everything." If you look at the way a ship was built back in 1920, it was all stick built. But if you look at the way a ship was a ship is built now, they they build these massive prefabricated steel structures, uh, you know, and those are all put together in a dry dock. And then you have um, like various other modules that are that are installed and in accommodation modules um, that get slid into the, st- the the steel structure. And he essentially decided to innovate on on that concept and you know there's these days there's there's actually dozens of companies that are i mean there's let me rephrase that there's there's probably thousands of companies for sure thousands of companies that are that are prefabricating um housing and prefabricating various components of buildings but ultimately you can just get so much more efficient building in a factory and labor is way cheaper everything's easier to standardize and Ultimately, if you want to solve the supply and demand issue of housing, if you by increasing supply, like I think the easiest way to do that is by is by using prefabricated construction, particularly in areas where labor is very, very expensive, um, like mountain towns or major cities um, anywhere in California. Things are heading that direction, but I think that no one's fully cracked the code yet. And there's a lot of issues with prefab modular housing. And the industry is still working out a lot of kinks, but I think it's definitely heading in the right direction. You know, obviously the supply is also regulate, regulated to a large degree by just city code. 
you know, San Francisco is a great example. It's a city that really doesn't allow much new housing to begin with, period, um, which just keeps supply tight. And then, you know, where I just used to live and move back from St. George, I mean, they're building like crazy and it keeps housing affordable, but people don't really like it. They're like, man, there's so much building around here. It's so much crazy construction. But ultimately, you have to build something somewhere. So I guess, does it start even at the at the dirt level? Are there issues there? Just, I mean, so if you guys decide to go put in a, a neighborhood that's completely prefab, do you run into any issues just from the start? Or is it okay to do that? And, and build, or, or local governments don't care what building goes over the land just so long as it's a home? I mean, it all has to do with zoning requirements of yeah. a certain jurisdiction. So every town or city or county is, has various zoning maps. And, you know, the map might say, hey, this this half acre plot of land right here, you know, is zoned for 20 multifamily units. And this plot of acre, this 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 plot over here is zoned for, for 50 multifamily units. Or this plot is 20 acres and is zoned for for agriculture. So you can't build anything on it or you can build like one farmhouse, you know, there, there's all these different zoning requirements. And sure. so there's a, obviously these exist. And I think a lot of towns and cities are, are rezoning. And I mean, rezoning is, is relatively common these days. And, and there's obviously a push to change zoning so that it can accommodate more housing. Um, however, there also are, uh, mostly state, less less of a federal level, but there are definitely state laws, and I, I really can only. I mean, I know I do know that they exist across a number of states, but I, I know the California one's a bit better. But in California, there are a number of state laws that are actually like making things further advantageous and allowing for additional units to be built. So back a number of years ago, there was there's like there's like a, a California um, density bonus. So if you want to build Let's say you you want to build a, a multifamily um, a multifamily parcel or a multifamily building on a, a multifamily zone parcel. You're actually able to, uh, like, let's say it's zoned for ten units. You there's a there's a whole like formula and table in the code that you can look up and you can build like maybe um, twelve or fourteen units. You can up it by like thirty percent or something like that if you make a certain number of those units affordable. And there's like, you know, it could, there's like very low income and medium low income and there's different, there's like a whole calculus to how it's done, but that's, that's one, that's one way that California makes it a little bit easier. And there's a few other laws that have been passed. There's this new ADU law that's been passed. So any single family zone parcel is allowed to put an ADU on their land. Mm. Um, And initially a lot of like homeowners associations and places were, were like, uh, adverse to that sort of thing and the yeah the state law kind of supersedes that which is really cool and just two years ago in 2021 another law that was was passed in california called sb9 uh, and that's kind of a cool one that allows that allows uh people who own a single family parcel a single family zone parcel to subdivide their parcel into two units so uh if you and there there's a number of restrictions on that um, so it's, you know, not every parcel is eligible necessarily, but hmm. for probably most parcels in California, if you own a lot, you're able to divide it into two and then you could theoretically build two units on each. So um, actually one project that I've been been trying to work on is a, is a project in, 
in Truckee where we buy a single family parcel um, and then subdivide it into two and then build two units on each. So essentially you can build four prefab tiny homes on a single family zone parcel. Um, and that's actually, that's actually a project that my, um, the guy who I work with now, who is the, the former CEO and owner of that company, uh, Rad Urban in Oakland, um, he, he now builds prefabricated uh, tiny homes um, out of a factory in Mexico. And yeah, he actually had reached out to me asking if I wanted to, to do a project like that in Truckee. And I was like, oh my God, yes, of course, I'm super stoked. And so we, we actually tried to make that happen back in the spring and fell into a couple roadblocks, but I'm hoping to renew the project and um, hopefully facilitate it sometime in the not too far future. So who are you working with now? Like what's, what's your job? Like what is keeping you busy at 40 plus hours a week right now? I went down to Patagonia this past winter, um, kind of on the job hunt, actually. I had like, I had scheduled a bunch of meetings with some old like friends and coworkers and people right before I went down to Patagonia, like kind of letting people know that I was looking for a job because mm-hmm. I, like I, I ended up taking a little bit more time off than a year and a half. Yeah. How long, I meant to ask you that. How long were you on the road? Uh, almost three years. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and you did not work for those three years, more or less? I did not. Um, okay. Okay. I did. There were a few little ventures. Like I, I started a van conversion. I just started a van conversion business. Uh, um, yes. And that was that, that provided some income. Um, and I guess I really wasn't on the road for that time. I kind of already settled in Truckee by then. And, okay. um, there, I did a little bit of like freelance engineering, um, and consulting. And then I did a little bit, actually, this is kind of a funny business story, but like last, last winter, we, me and some friends, um, <laughs> actually one of my good buddies, he came to town to he was going to work for another friend who was a contractor shoveling snow off of roofs. And he ended up like initiating the start to this company that we called, uh, the United Sierra snow removal stands for <laughs> USSR. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> it sounds very communist of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was this hilarious joke of a company and off the books, but there is, there is this like crazy panic in Truckee. It snowed so much this past, this past winter and yeah. spring. And, everyone was freaking out about their roofs being shoveled. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a licensed engineer and my buddy who was working with us was a licensed contractor. And we had unlimited labor of like, you know, experienced dirtbag climbers who know how to use rope systems and feel comfortable on roofs. And so we like, my buddy kind of was the started the company and, you know, just essentially just found some someone on Craigslist that wanted them to shovel the roof and then we made it a little a slightly more legit. And I was posting on like next door, like, hey, like I'm an engineer, like happy to evaluate your house and sh- like have a bunch of climbers to shovel snow off of roofs. And <laughs> it was like this hilarious little venture. I think at our height we had like 10 employees and we uh yeah, we made like quite a lot of money in a very short duration. It was it was really funny. And so this was just filling this year's need back in the winter and spring, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just like a, a brief little <laughs> USSR. What, yeah, was, what did that yeah. stand for? United Snow. What? Well, it started off. My buddy, my buddy, uh, 
my buddy, my really good friend, um, his name's Ema. He came to town and he, he wanted to call the company Johnson and Sons. He's like, Oh yeah. Like if we call it Johnson and Sons, like, well, for sure. It seems super standard. I was like, <laughs> dude, don't, he, he has like, he's from, he's from the Basque country and he has a, he has a pretty big accent. And I was like, don't do that. That's like not a good idea. Um, <laughs> you should call it Sierra snow removal, something simple. And so it was Sierra snow removal for like the first two days. And then another buddy, my buddy, Matt's, he, he's like, yo, what if we put United in front of it? It's USSR. <laughs> and, and so that, that stuck. Um, and, and it was like this whole, and like, there were like five of us who kind of like ran it and we called ourselves like the comrades. And it was like, you know, it was just, the whole thing was like a joke and a super funny little, I don't know. It was like yeah, a, okay. it was one of those, like, it was like a fun business project, I guess, but it was cool. We learned a lot, made some money. It was sweet. Okay. So, so what, uh, yeah. Bring us up to today then. So what are you doing now? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was the initial question. So, okay. So, um, <laughs> shortly after the USSR, like, well, simultaneously while the USSR is running, um, uh, I, I've always kept in touch with, with, uh, the, the guy who used to run this company back in Oakland, like at its, at its peak, I think there were like 300 employees. Most of those people working in, in a factory in the central Valley, but there were probably like, I don't know, 50 to 70 professional professional people working in the office and and uh yeah we we had kept in touch i think he was like impressed that i'd started a van conversion business and i think he had assumed maybe i'd made some money on that um maybe more money than i actually made on it but (laughs) but he he reached out to me this winter and it's like hey do you want to do you want to build a little tiny home community in Truckee using sb9 and he kind of like I, like he he was the one who made me familiar with that law I had previously described. He's like, yeah, you just buy buy you know split a, a piece of land that's that's um zoned for single family development, subdivide it, and then he'd provide the tiny homes, um, and I do all the work, something like that. And so that was like you know that was the plan. And he came up to Truckee to talk about it at one point in the spring and. Um, it just so happened that when he came up, he was also like, Hey, by the way, do you want to, do you want to build my house for me? My like personal house for me <laughs> in the Bay area. And I was initially like, no, I don't because I didn't want to move to the Bay. That was like something that, that I found. Um, I, I really like, that's like a priority in my life. I don't, I want to move. I want to live in like a beautiful place and a place where I can recreate and do the things that I want to do. And we're talking about San um, Francisco for those that aren't aware, right? Yeah. I mean, that just area. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Bay. Yeah. Um, the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, yeah. So I, um, I, I thought about it and we talked a bit more about it. And I ultimately realized that it was a really incredible opportunity because not only was I going to build this guy's house, but essentially he was going to fully mentor me on how to be a, a builder mm-hmm. and a developer um, and a designer. He, he, his background, um, he's a civil engineer. Um, he's a licensed civil engineer. He, he's a licensed contractor. He is a very experienced real estate developer. Um, he's run a number of companies and has has run a number of prefabricated or I guess factories that produce prefabricated buildings. 
both tiny homes and multifamily apartments and he's getting into the high rise realm. Um, and yeah, essentially I signed up for a mentorship with him. Uh, and it's been, it's been awesome to date. It's been kind of like a dream job in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's quite frustrating, no doubt. Like a lot of jobs jobs are, yeah, as jobs are, (laughs) uh, like today was an insanely frustrating day, actually being on this construction site, trying to get a concrete pour teed up. But yeah, it's been, it's been incredible. Uh, I've, I've essentially been able to like, I kind of just do everything. So I, I do some of the engineering design. Um, I do some of the mechanical electrical plumbing design. Um, I do some architectural design, uh, limited but some i do some drafting i'm the general contractor so i manage all the labor on site Uh, so i hire various subcontractors for specialty trades and then i kind of run a crew of uh, a crew of workers to to do the bulk of the building um and yeah i like i found a bank to secure the construction loan we're actually signing literally signing signing closing documents today and we close on Friday, which is like super exciting planning and zoning and working with the city and working with inspectors and just like learning the entire process. And then simultaneously also learning a lot about zoning and planning. It's just been a lot of learning and, you know, I'm building a house for this guy and that's, uh, that's cool, but it's ultimately not, I'm not interested in building custom homes for, for people that's not what i want to do however learn the process yeah yeah exactly the the learning that i'm getting out of this job is is incredible and i mean i couldn't imagine any other job that would allow me to learn so many different steps of the process um it's like it's really cool and and the guy who who i'm working under he is like he is he is really really intelligent and um I really like working with him and I really respect his style. Uh, he, he likes to go fast. He is super, super dialed and he kind of just knows, he kind of just knows everything. Uh, and he's essentially just teaching me all these things. And, um, I'm hoping from here, I'll be able to like take, take all of that skill and, um, hopefully we'll continue working with him and produce tiny home communities and mountain towns. Cause ultimately that's, that's what I'm, motivated by and interested in and he is a really awesome connection to make that happen and he he's also equally motivated to make that happen and um so yeah it's it's cool we're both we're both pretty much on the same page and working on this project but i think we both anticipate that we'll be working together a bunch in the future and hopefully building building some cool projects in mountain towns yeah let's talk about that future because you said you're on a admittedly long path perhaps to get into where you want to be so what are you aiming for yeah, so um, it's admittedly long because building building things and getting things approved by cities and going through planning and design just takes it's such a long process. Construction is it's one of those things that you know it's it's always delayed. No construction project is. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but the vast majority of them are are never on time. And where I want to go, like what I, what I really want to do in my life is, is build tiny home communities. Um, these minimalistic semi communal living situations where 
people can pay less money and live in quality housing in mountain towns. So mm-hmm. I guess where this stems from, I think the future, if you're living in an urban environment, high rise housing is, is for sure the future mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of affordable housing. It's way more efficient to build. Uh, it decreases urban sprawl. Um, it allows people to actually live in the places where they work. Um, and yeah, high rises are like the no brainer. In mountain towns, you have a similar issue. You have a lot of second homeowners pricing out people who actually work in these towns. Um, And, you know, a lot of people, especially with COVID, you have a lot of people who work these remote jobs who are coming into mountain towns and pricing out a lot of people who who don't work remote jobs and are getting paid less. And as a result, you you create this this housing issue. you're, You're increasing demand. Supply stays the same. Things are zoned the same way. Zoning zoning um, districts and regulations take a lot of time to to change and can't keep up with changing populations. Um, and simultaneously, it's really expensive to build in mountain towns. Labor is really, really, really expensive. And and so, what I would like to do is build prefab tiny home communities. So, one example is just is doing that SB9 project. That's kind of like the first thing I want to do. Buy a single family zone parcel, subdivide it into two, put two units on each parcel. What we were looking at putting on would be two homes that are 610 square feet. Mm-hmm. Or I guess four homes that are 610 square feet each. So you can call that a, a tiny home or not. Some people are like, what do you mean? Like, that's not a tiny home. It is two bedrooms and a living room and a bathroom and a full kitchen. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an apartment or, you know, it's a home. It's not that small, but um, maybe a small home, not a tiny home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like one concept. So you buy the single family zone lot, you build four homes on it. Um, and essentially what you do is you, instead of, you know, it, it changes an issue where instead of, instead of like, if you go to Truckee, for example, there's a million homes out there that are sitting completely vacant because they're owned by second, third home homeowners from the Bay area and other places, and they never get used. And it's really sad that I have tons of friends who, who live in vans, almost all of them incredibly psyched that they do so. But I think it's complete bullshit that people can't afford to live in the towns that they work in while there's tons of other people who own these 5,000 square foot homes that see use maybe four weeks a year. Mm -hmm. If that, um, I think that's absurd. Personally, I, I would, I would, I believe that there should be a tax, like a vacancy tax on, on homes. Mm -hmm. I think that like homeowners should be punished if their homes are sitting vacant. I think they should be rented out or they should be taxed. Um, I don't anticipate that will happen at any point in the near future, but I think that's like one way to solve the housing crisis. Well, and renting out comes with an asterisk too, because there's two kinds of renting. Well, there's arguably more than two, but there's the, there's the long term. Yeah. There's the long term who's uh, a stable tenant who may be, you know, somebody that lives in the community and then there's, you know, Airbnb short term and that's two different kinds of models. Right. Yeah, totally. And, and, um, I do think that, I do think that short term renting shall be permitted. I think like, sure. I think that, jurisdictions or regulations that say like Airbnb is not allowed here. I think that's, I think 
there there is certainly validity there is 100% a lot of validity to the argument that 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 is hurting um rents because it incentivizes it incentivizes uh landowners yeah. to 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 short term rent and not long term rent however i also think it like i think hotels are absurd concepts as well sure sure <laughs> and i I don't want people to, I, I want hotels to go away. I think, I mean, I mean, sure that some of them need to exist, no doubt. But I think that, I think that there just needs to be, you know, some, some, some short-term rentals allowed, but yeah, I just, I think that there needs to be an incentive for more people to, to rent out their place, particularly in a place like Truckee or many of these, many of these affluent mountain towns where so many people own second and third homes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's interesting. Do you have any examples? I know they they exist out here. I was just poking around myself just a minute ago of these. Like, what is a ideal kind of tiny home community? Do you have an example to point towards of like this is where it works, this is how it works, this is how it looks? Um, yeah, there. I've I've like looked at a few. Actually, there's one in Grass Valley. Well, I should actually back up before. So I I, I did mention there is there is one concept that was like you know the four the four homes on a single family zone parcel but ultimately that's that's really not that's actually not a sustainable model number one because that law sp9 does dictate that whoever is developing the parcel actually needs to live in one of those for a minimum of three years so that mm-hmm. that would be a project that i would do and like actually you know assuming i would do that i would I'd, I'd you know potentially live in that house for three years and that's like a one and done situation gotcha that's not a sustainable model but what a more sustainable model is would be is essentially, um, and this answers a previous question that was maybe not fully answered was 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 buying a multifamily zone parcel and creating a tiny home community that that looks a little bit different from the traditional multifamily zoned a multifamily development that would typically be built there and and um, in the eyes of I think you asked a question like you know would would a city or a regulatory agency be adverse to prefab housing or are there like issues there? And the answer is, is there are some, there are some concerns, but ultimately what the planning department is checking for is, is like, you know, square footage requirements and number of parking spaces and number of units and um, number of bedrooms to that equate to the number of units. And um, if you have a disconnected four-sided individual tiny home versus uh, an apartment building that is not necessarily an issue and so towns and cities will allow you to build these tiny home communities the issue is that you have to justify the cost and a lot of times these multifamily zoned parcels are zoned in a way where they're supposed to be dense and so it doesn't actually make sense to build like a sprawling tiny home community where every every home has a couple hundred feet around it of, of free space. Sure. Um, they like more be on top of each other. And so, yeah, I, I'm kind of, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the model would look like, but what I envision, I think like what, where I would like to get to is the thought of maybe having, uh, let's say an acre of land and you'd have 10 tiny homes, um, which is still pretty dense actually, but you have a communal parking area, so a parking garage situation, assuming you're in Truckee where you actually needed to be covered. And then within that communal parking area, you have a communal workshop. And that workshop maybe has like some some workbenches, maybe some tools that are locked up for individuals who own their own tools. Hmm. Um, 
a communal space for people to store outdoor items in in that shop. Um, and then like a communal outdoor eating area, a communal outdoor barbecue area, maybe a communal garden. There's a number of different ways this could be, this can be, I guess, like formed. Maybe it's a, maybe it's an HOA um, with an agreement. Maybe it's, it's just, you know, everything's a, I think that the easiest way to do it would be just to have a, uh, a rental situation with, with like, you know, shared amenities um, that are defined, but you know, it could go, it could go like into a more complex realm and it could be like a cozy, uh, ideally it'd be more of like a co-housing situation where, where people actually own their own tiny homes. And that's the, that's the, like get the long-term goal. I would like, I think ultimately housing should be more affordable. And I think that people who are young should be able to afford to like other, be able to purchase the places where they live in and not just pay rent to landlords. And I think it'd be really cool to build these tiny communities and in a way where you could actually have people invest in their own land and, and be motivated to, um, to, you know, to be stewards of that land. Yeah, sure. I I think that would be like a really cool place to go. And I'm not exactly sure how to make that happen, but that's kind of like, I guess my longer term vision and we'll see if it happens. Hopefully it does. Yeah, I, I find it interesting. I mean, I think over time we've started to kind of soften as Americans, speaking for Americans here, on um, that we need giant, giant houses. Like 20 years ago, that was totally, that's what you aspire to. For some people, that's still the case. Absolutely is not dead. But I do think there's a growing trend towards a minimalist style of housing that if it's not tiny home, it's at least something smaller, right? Like, but where I live, it's very hard to find like a house under 2000 square feet. It, they're, they're massive. And that was just the trend when a lot of these were built right around the year 2000. Um, so I do think there's going to be a growing appetite for something. If it's not altogether a tiny home, at least something quite a bit smaller. It's, it's actually been really interesting trying to build this like little, little fourplex tiny home situation in Truckee. I actually did a lot of a lot of calling around to different HOAs to see if they'd be amenable to this project. And every time they'd be like, Oh, that's like a crazy idea. We're like, we're probably not down. And like, also we have all these like square footage minimums. So if you want to build a house, it has to be a minimum of, hmm. of uh 1500 or 2000 square feet. If you want to build a house in our HOA. And I, I thought that was absurd. I was like, yep. that's crazy that like, if you want to live in this community, you have to build your house to a certain, it has to be a certain size. And I personally hate HOAs. Like I, I just too, and I've lived in two of them. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I absolutely hate the concept of an HOA. And, um, I mean, however, they're, they're no doubt here to stay for, for a while. Um, you're totally right. Like people are, there's a, there's a significant appetite for a more minimalistic living, living culture and living style. I think that like, when I was living in my van, I was like, this is as good as it gets. Like I have everything I need <laughs> it's and like right here behind me. Yeah. yeah it was, a, I mean, nowadays when I go pack for a trip, I like, I'm like, I forget something every time. And when you have your van, it was, that was like the best part is you never have to pack up. You're just mm, like, cool. I'm true. going to this new place and all my things are with me. Um, yep, your house is right there. And yeah, I, I think, but like, you know, even the house not on wheels, I think it's, I think people just don't need that much space. I think that, uh, that that minimalism is very much on the rise and i think people appreciate having smaller spaces and i do think that you know 
like sometimes it is nice to to host people and have parties and if you're gonna have kids like for sure you want to have space for them but I think a lot of people can make do with very little Mm -hmm. more so than in the past and I think that yeah I think there's just a huge need for firmware housing and it's it's cheaper to build it's easier to build it's easier to prefab it's easier to ship and uh there's obviously a demand for it so i think it's no doubt the future it's just the challenge is i guess just uh just doing it <laughs> yeah and those big houses aren't going anywhere you can always graduate up to a bigger house you go and have three kids it's going to be tough to be in a you know 600 or less square foot house but when you add housing, it makes housing cheaper. And I heard a really interesting podcast on this. I'll try and find it. Where they talked about there's this misconception. Even building expensive housing still makes housing cheaper for everyone. Because when you build something really nice and fancy, people move up into that. And the thing they left behind is now available for someone else. So if you build a bunch of tiny homes, some people may you know wave their arm at that. And like, ah, I don't want to live in a tiny home. But somebody does. And it just adds to the supply. So building, totally. building homes is a good thing of any kind. So, yeah, actually yeah. that's, that's a really good point you bring up. Like I, like even it's funny, like, like this home that I'm building now is definitely not a tiny home. And sometimes yeah. I'm like, ethically, I'm like, oh man, like, is this like, you know, I'm, right. I'm learning. Right. I know I'm like learning so much and I'm, and I no no doubt I'm like happy where I'm at, but I do like, I do have to justify building this like very, very fancy home in my head. And I, I do, I'm a huge believer in that concept of supply and demand and every additional home built is, is, is benefiting supply, that supply issue. Yep. And so, you know, like the person moving, moving into this new home and the new ADU that we're building, like there's going to be two families or, you know, two individuals who are moving out of their previous homes and, That's then, right. you know, That's people right. will move out of it. And, and like, you know, unfortunately, like, I don't necessarily like i said i don't want to build luxury apartments or luxury homes or one-off custom homes that's not the pursuit i want to do but like you do have to concede that the people doing that they inarguably are also helping the housing crisis you know in some way by increasing supply perhaps just not as much as the person who is building actual affordable housing that's right Yep. No, I, I think what you're doing is really interesting and I'm really fascinated by it. And I, I've just been thinking this for years. I'm like, we have to be seeing more either ADU or just some sort of small construction, small and very affordable. The modular thing I hadn't really thought much about because I don't have the engineering background, but that makes total sense on the efficiency. And when you have efficiency, you reduce costs. Um, you know, that, that's almost always the case, right? And so that makes a lot of sense too, because yeah, I, I never really considered, you know, we literally build a home from scratch right there in the dirt. Um, and, and, I, I mean, even uh, we looked at this one time, just as a crazy thing, we weren't really that interested. We're like, you know, Home Depot sells prefab construction for like a Sheds. home office or whatever you uh, can buy for oh, like gotcha, $10,000. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the whole prefab thing is, I, I think it's like so huge. It's, yeah. it's like, it's baffling that in my opinion, there's going to be, there's going to be a company that's going to come out and five to 10 years and they're going to pull an Airbnb or an an Uber and take a solid market share of the construction industry Mm. by just pumping out houses at, you know, pumping out probably multifamily apartments or, or units at a massive rate. And and it's certainly not going to be to the, the, the market percentage extent of an Airbnb or Uber, like just because the, I think the building industry is just, it's so massive 
how there's so many contractors out there. It's it's like a humongous industry, but I do think they're they're the industry is ripe for disrupt disruption, and there's a lot of people that are working on mm-hmm. disrupting it, and quite a few people who have made headway. But I think that no one has really really figured it out and like yeah gotten it completely dialed quite yet yeah i'm interested i've been sitting back waiting for something to change because yeah the old model is just kind of grinding along way too slow totally Um, yeah anything else oh sorry go ahead go ahead no i I mean that's that's it yeah it's just absurd how i think yeah the construction industry is quite backwards and i'm excited for for it to change okay well uh, if we didn't bore everyone else to tears with the housing stuff, let's maybe loop it back to climbing because I know some people will want to hear your thoughts more on that stuff. So because you were working so much and you were still able to do a really amazing things this fall, we talked a little bit about balancing work and climbing, which is, you know, an age old dilemma that I always get people asking about and people love to hear about it. So you're climbing at a high level, you're working at a high level. How are you doing it? I mean, other than just maybe just not sleeping much. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i've always been someone who has kept myself super busy and i've i've like definitely consider myself a pretty efficient person in regard to like use of time mm-hmm. but yeah i mean kind of what i described at the beginning of the podcast is how i do it it's like work really hard during the day and then yeah and then like know do your climbing thing on the weekends and climb as much as you can during the week and um i guess in a way it was like easier like it was easier for me to getting into climbing at a high level was a little bit easier to do full-time i think that climbing really lends itself to spending ample hours outside like if you want to I mean, if you want to see the kind of climbing you're doing for sure exactly yeah Yeah. i was gonna say if you if you want to go like sport climb 514 like the most efficient way or boulder really hard. I think the most efficient way to do that is really to stay in a gym. Yeah. Um, and then I think, yeah, like going in weekend warrioring it outside is, is like a great way to, to make that happen. I think if you want to get into big wall and alpine climbing, I think it is actually really, really crucial to have ample time outside on rock. I think technique is huge. Mm-hmm. Like, while I don't, I don't really consider myself a strong climber. Um, I actually have pretty weak finger strength and I don't, I don't like boulder super hard grades. Uh, and like what I attribute, like my ability to climb like 513 is not really based on strength. It's like I, the 513s I've climbed have mostly been like really technical, um, technical routes in general and, mm-hmm. and i've been able to i think like i attribute that to my my time climbing outside and when i used to go sport climbing i used to be the type of person who who would go to a crag and say i want i'm going to climb 10 to 15 routes today um wow and, yeah <laughs> and i'd go and like climb 10 to 15 different routes and if i fell i would just like continue up the route or lower down and then go to the next route i would never repeat anything yeah um and i think that if you want to climb a high grade that's maybe not the best tactic but if you want to get your technique really dialed i think it's a way better tactic because you ultimately get so much more mileage and climb so many different moves and i think if you're if you're climbing in on big walls and climbing the alpine technique and your ability to to move quickly and efficiently and 
you know, like place gear, like the right time, the first time, or like the right piece, the first time is super critical. And, um, yeah, I really took a lot of that time off to, to get that figured out and dialed. And so now going back to the working world, now that I have that background, I think it's a little bit easier for me to, you know, go to go spend my Saturdays and Sundays in Yosemite climbing big walls because I have that, that background and all that time that I dedicated to it in the past. Sure. Sure. Do you see yourself taking a phase like you did? I mean, you were on the road for three years and you learned a ton and you grew a lot as a climber. I mean, you had these career ambitions pulling you back to the real world, but do you see yourself maybe looking at a sabbatical type model or something like that? How, how do you see the, the future? I mean, as much as anyone can predict the future, it's always a crapshoot, but how do you think about that? I definitely think about it. Like my, to be honest, my current, my current job is like the amount of hours that I'm working is not, not sustainable mm -hmm. for my lifestyle. My job I'm taking, like I, I'm, it's kind of like a year and a half contract. I'm not, it's not like a full time. I technically work for myself. Uh, I started my own company that I just contract with this one guy and the contract will end when I finish, finish these houses that I'm building for him. And then when that happens, I will likely take a bunch of time off and go rock climbing and mm. go on a big trip and go on a big expedition. And then like the way I see things leading ideal in an ideal world um, is to kind of keep my career project based. So I have these miscellaneous projects and at times I have to dedicate a lot of time to them, but then the projects end or there's like lag times or various like I guess more relaxed times in the project. And then I can dedicate that time to, to rock climbing. Um, and that's kind of like the balance that I hope to strike. So, it's such a great way to live. I mean, this is where I hope modern work of all kinds heads in the future. I mean, it's easier maybe with your project style of kind of work, but even an office worker, I mean, if we could treat work and life kind of seasonally, I mean, there's so much research around how much happier people are when they don't have to treat work as just something you do the exact same way every week, every year for 40 years. So, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. I mean, I also think it's interesting, like for me personally, I've, I've, I did that debate. Like I have a lot of friends who work these random remote jobs and they're like, dude, I work like 20 hours a week and I get paid for like full time. And it's mm -hmm. like, my job is super chill and I make good money, and, but like, I hate what I do. And it's like, terrible but like i could work remote and i don't work that much and i kind of like fuck off and but like my job sucks yeah. and I, I i have a lot of i have a lot of friends who like are in that camp or somewhere around there and i've like considered that and you know considered getting a job in tech like maybe it wouldn't necessarily be exactly that but um but ultimately yeah I, for me for me personally i think it's really important to to have a job that I find like I find interest in yeah. and I found passion in and um, yeah, I, I ultimately like, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to work so many hours of, of your life away and you should probably enjoy what you're doing. And so I think it's really important to, to figure out, to figure out a career that actually is, you know, that brings fulfillment into your life and not just, you know, it's obviously financially beneficial, but also like enjoyable to do. Yeah. You definitely don't want to hate your job. And I definitely fell into that pattern at times and I stuck with it because the money was very good. And I was maybe a little bit more like your friends and like, well, I mean, I was there, I wasn't 
not, I wasn't working my hours. I was working my hours, but it was a little bit of like, eh, whatever I roll, like it pays the bills. And so that's why I got in the pattern of just saving money as like, like crazy to get out of it. Um, I think what you're doing makes a lot more sense, but you at least acknowledge that, I mean, work is still work. I mean, every day, I think there's a, still a pattern that people are searching for just something that, you know, you would call a dream job, but there is no such thing in my mind. I mean, you're still busting ass. It's still not going to be easy every day. Like today you said, right? Yeah, totally. I also want to acknowledge, like, I should actually like preface this entire conversation by like okay. acknowledging that like all of my words are like stated from a place of complete privilege. Mm. Like yeah. it's, you know, like just to, to have a job like this and like to be, to be able to, to be able to choose what I'm doing for work and to be able to like, you know, take, take time off and, and to be able to rock climb, like, you know, like the, I totally. can, you, yeah. you would never be able to do that unless you're, you know, privileged and, you know, have a safety net. And so I don't know. I just, I feel like that's worth acknowledging. Oh, um, it is. I mean, this is a pretty unique time in history. I mean, the, the fact we even have these conversations, it did not exist hardly 20 years ago. I mean, to do, to have your life, you pretty much had to live destitute. It was like the camp four kind of, uh, you know, stereotype, but you had to basically live on the margins of society. And now people get to live this life with some degree of financial com comfort, if not a lot, and still get to pursue their interests and hobbies and things with a, with a whole lot of leeway that wasn't possible in decades past, for sure. I, I, I should underline this entire operation I run with that as well. So <laughs> <laughs> not just this conversation. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, I think it's always worth like, you know, I guess acknowledging that fact. Um, mm -hmm. So just to summarize, I mean, you don't have any great helpful tips from this last fall. You basically just hustled to make it work on the weekends. You were still wildly successful in doing that. But yeah, you just had a lot of long drives, just, just getting out there, getting in the reps, making sure you showed up and did it. And in the future, it looks like you'll find a way to kind of view work a little bit more seasonally where you kind of focus in on a project and then have some time to go and do trips and things like that and take time away or work minimally while you're doing it. Yeah, I think, I guess just to, to, I guess if you were looking for like, I guess advice or for, you know, for whoever, for like the weekend warrior, I think, I think the most important thing is, is, um, is staying stoked. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that actually, ironically, I never really was a climber who had objectives when I was on the road. I'd never really, I was never someone who was like, Oh, I really want to like climb that particular thing. I, I was a little bit more like go with the flow and, just like feel where I was stoked at the time. But I do think while you're working, I think that having, having defined objectives is a really good way to stay motivated. Hmm. And so for me, like the triple, the triple was a really, really good way for me to be like, fuck. Yeah. I'm going to drive to the, I'm going to drive like four and a half, five hours to the Valley both ways with no one else in my car, just to meet up with my partner and climb hmm. for the weekend because I really want to do this thing that will, you know, that only will happen if I, if I get a little bit more mileage on these routes. And I think that having objectives and defined, defined ideas of what you want to do in your climbing, I think that's a really, really good way to, to provide motivation to get after it while you're working. Huh, that That's fascinating, man, because I was the exact same way when I was in the working world, you know, I would just pine for climbing so bad because I was sitting in this office all week. And all I could do was think about climbing. I wanted to read about climbing. I wanted to just absorb it. And then when I didn't work in that office, like six months later, it 
my motivation, I'm still like a diehard obsessed climber. I still am. But my motivation for objectives and like projects and goals really just like crumbled. And I've had that discussion with many other people who've lived similar lives to me. And um, I just, I guess I didn't need, because I was starting to live more fully out in a, you know, in a holistic way. Like I didn't have this job that I didn't like and I was just going through the motions. I guess I didn't need that fire to get me excited when I left the working world. I don't know if you can relate to that. Do you think Dude, that's 100%. why? Okay, okay. Because <laughs> when you were in the road, you didn't seem like you needed that. You just like, no, oh, it's yeah. climbing. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and and it's funny because I actually I had I had like more actually more so when I was on the road. I had an insane, insatiable appetite to go climb, hmm. but it was a little bit different. It was like more about just the number of pitches and like the number of hours that was huh. that was what got me excited and i mean my friends used to joke that they would be like oh like we're gonna walk the dog like it was it was like this big joke that like like they're like oh someone has to go take tyler climbing right now like i, <laughs> I, like, I would, okay. like i i remember there was there was one weekend where i showed up <laughs> i showed up to yosemite at like at like 8 p.m or something on a friday night this is like pre me leaving my job like weekend warrior status back when i was living in san francisco and i showed up at like 8 p.m and i convinced someone to climb the central pillar of frenzy with me <laughs> at that time and like in pitch dark and we you know we climbed it from like 9 p.m to to midnight or something like that wow. you know, this is when we were total gumbies and <laughs> but i was like stoked and you know we finished the central pillar at midnight and then we like top roped like the birch f williams next door like after midnight and went to bed and then probably woke up early and climbed something the next day just because at the time i was like yeah i was just (laughs) so just like so psyched i was like i love i love climbing and i love getting outside and i just wanted to do it as much as possible and but yeah you're but when i when i did hit the road i think um i didn't really have any objectives like i never i literally never had any objectives i i had this long-term objective of free climbing el cap and i had this long-term objective of climbing in patagonia those were the two things that i wanted to do with my climbing Mm. and both of those things just kind of happened organically i didn't really like push them i didn't i didn't really train for them i mean the climbing i was doing i guess was training for them but i didn't like have a i didn't have like a training plan to do those things and now that i'm working i think that Dude, the triple was like a really, really nice, a nice thing that I, I told myself, like, cool. I'm like this summer, I, I was pretty good at going to the gym and pretty good at doing a lot of cardio and all of that. I knew that was like for the triple. I was like, I'm training for the triple. I need to get super fit and get my fitness like really, really up. And um, it was easy to do that because I had that motivation. Yeah. Well, keep doing what you've been doing. I mean, I can tell you from experience, it's easy to go down the training rabbit hole. Obviously, people stay happy doing that, but a lot don't. Um, I've probably suffered with the latter at times, getting too obsessed with objectives. So I admire your approach. Yeah, just keep doing it, man. It's it's pretty inspiring to me. Thanks, dude. I, yeah. I appreciate that. And I think, um, yeah, I think honestly, some like legitimate, like some actual training is hope is potentially in, in my future. Um, I don't. I don't know for sure, for sure, but I think it, I think my climbing could definitely benefit from a little bit of hangboarding and, and, uh, yeah, a little bit of actual gym climbing training. Uh oh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of actually, to be honest, like this, 
after after my last weekend in Yosemite, I decided I'm like, cool. I don't think I want to climb outside till till spring, and I think I want to just like focus on on skiing and mountain biking and like I my new my new objective my my project for the winter is to climb to climb Z to v, climb a V8 in the gym. Wow. Okay. That's, All right. That's what. So you're just gonna climb in the gym and just mountain bike and ski outside, huh? Yeah, well, mountain bike till till it snows in well, a couple, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple yeah. weeks, but um, but yeah, mostly just I think I'm pretty psyched on skiing this year. So interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, you sound well rounded. I like it. I mean, for someone who's achieved so much in such a short time, they usually go straight down that performance rabbit hole. But you're you somehow sound innocent about it all. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I used to be a big skier, and then I, okay. I did I did take I kind of stopped skiing. Um, pretty much just to just to climb and I, I threw that to the side, but, um, I, yeah, as of after, after last winter in the Sierras, it, it's, it was hard not to get recycled on skiing. Absolutely. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Let's maybe wrap it up there. Do you have three favorite books you'd recommend? I literally just read Chantaram. Um, okay. which is like, I mean, it's, it's just a good read. I was, I, someone told me that it was a piece of nonfiction and then, upon reading that it was fiction, I was incredibly disappointed, <laughs> okay. but, but it's still a super good read. Um, uh, I'd say a really good book that I've read that I really recommend is, is called the unsettling of American agriculture mm. by Wendell Berry. Interesting. Um, I re- that's, that's, I mean, Shantaram's whatever. This is a book I, I really recommend. I think it has a good message. Didn't necessarily age well. It was written a number of years ago. Um, like in regard to there's just maybe some some language in there that you need to like be aware of but the overall message is is really is really incredible and it's kind of like a look into a dude who questions agricultural system and political system Hmm. uh it's super super good well let me ask you one uh this will be the second podcast in a row we've talked about this so brent bargon when i interviewed him who you know recommended the book happy city which seems like it would be right up your alley have you read that one I haven't, no. We'll put that one on your list. Cool. Okay. Yeah, it's all about how cities are developed and where we need to head to make, you know, modern living really make sense in the future. So I will give that a look for sure. That sounds sweet. All right. Any others? Uh, Honestly, I'm struggling to think of a third right now. Don't worry about it. We don't have to. We could throw Happy City as a third. Sure, sure. We'll, we'll throw Happy City. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, man, Tyler, this has been fantastic having you here. I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah, totally. Thanks for thanks for your time and um, thanks for having me on. Of course. I want to remind you or let you know for the first time that I write a weekly newsletter that has really become popular in recent months. I put a lot of things in there that aren't deserving of their own post online, such as books I'm reading various articles as it relates to personal finance or life, sometimes some music, sometimes not, a little bit of everything that keeps you on your toes. It is not just a notification of new posts. You don't need that. I want to add some flavor, and so you can get that there each week. Head on over, put in your email over at clippingchains.com. It is free. You can unsubscribe at any time. All right, guys, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.